the party was in full swing in the Soviet Union. A wedding like none the USSR had ever seen. Two of the Soviet Union's heroes were to be joined in holy matrimony, and the Soviet leadership had ensured that everyone around the world knew about it. The bride had exchanged her pressure suit for a white dress and veil, a bouquet in red and yellow resting in the crook of her arm, while her groom had left his own behind in favor of a black-and-white suit. The bigwigs of the Russian spaceflight community were all in attendance, including, surprisingly, Sergei Kurlyov and his old friend, recently-turned-rival, Valentin Glushko. Legions of cameras clicked and flashed, documenting every moment for history. Before long, some of those images would find their way to the outside, and speculation would commence regarding the unnamed engineers ambling about the venue. Once the festivities were over, Werner von Braun picked up a copy of the New York Times wherein resided a full feature about the wedding of the century. Included was a short passage regarding the identity of the two engineers. So-called unofficial reports had suggested that they were top players in the Soviet space program. They even provided a pair of names, Valentin Glushko and Sergei Kurlyov. The curtain was pulled back, if only by an inch. After years of high-stakes competition, with nothing but hearsay and speculation with which to build a picture of his adversary, Von Braun had gained his first glimpse of his rival across the world. Welcome to episode 18 of Frontier of Infinity, End of an Era. In the last episode, we covered the final mission of Project Mercury, and thus the end of the first American crewed space program. Astronaut Gordon Cooper flew a fantastic mission aboard Faith 7, remaining in orbit for more than a full day and brilliantly contending with a severe power loss right before re-entry. It marked the final act of Project Mercury, and today we're going to discuss the final two missions in the Soviet Vostok program. Like the Americans, the Soviets are looking ahead to bigger and better things. Vostok, like Mercury, has nearly run its course. But before the end the Soviets will mark another first. When we last left off with the Soviet space program, Sergei Kurlyov had finally received authorization to construct his massive N-1 launch vehicle, which he hoped would serve as a Soviet moon rocket. He tentatively hoped that the first launch of the new vehicle would go through in 1965 but there was still no concerted moon program present in the USSR as there was in the United States. Kurlyov and his team devoured reams of Western media, 
translated from their published languages into Russian so that the engineers could understand. The news was not promising. The American space program had kicked into high gear and were now dashing ahead with moon plans. Money flowed freely, and resources of other sorts were certainly not in short supply. Such was not the case for Kurlyov, who was constantly short of funds and resources, due in large part to the Soviet Union's worsening economic straits. Kurlyov had already had to cancel much of the ground testing for the N1's engines. While Nikita Khrushchev was more interested in military rockets, he was still desirous to see the schism between Kurlyov and Valentin Glushko repaired. If you recall, Kurlyov and Glushko had come together to design the R7, Glushko being a brilliant engine designer. But their relationship had broken down over a disagreement regarding the engines for the new N1. Khrushchev wanted his two star engineers working together again, and thus he invited both of them, as well as their wives, to his vacation dacha in June of 1963. Kurlyov's wife Nina was hopeful that the holiday would allow her husband to rest, and might genuinely be the catalyst required to repair his relationship with Glushko. But the damage that had been dealt was too severe. They remained civil throughout their stay with the Soviet premier, but their mutual disdain was always roiling right beneath the surface. Kurlyov did not let this prime opportunity to directly lobby the premier to pass him by, though. He pitched the notion of using the N-1 to place a Soviet cosmonaut on the moon. Before the Americans, of course. Khrushchev was enamored by the idea. But the gnashing jaws of reality tempered his enthusiasm. The Soviets could hardly feed themselves. How could they justify the expense of flying a cosmonaut to the moon? When he asked Kurlyov how much his moon program would cost, Kurlyov estimated that it would require the expenditure of between 10 and 12 billion rubles. It was too much. Khrushchev wouldn't commit to the program. But though the moon program was on ice, Vostok was still active, and Kurlyov had a grand finale planned for it. The previous summer, in August of 1962, the Soviets had launched Vostoks 3 and 4, which carried out the first tandem manned mission in history. Two Vostoks, fired off just barely a day apart, orbited the Earth together communicated by radio, and came down together. Kurlyov had even managed to arrange the two launches in such a way that they appeared to execute an orbital rendezvous, though this was not actually the case. The summer of 63 would see another double flight, with Vostoks 5 and 6. But this mission would be longer, with Vostok 5 remaining in orbit for almost five whole days a record if successful. But this mission would also see the first woman reach space, Valentina Tereshkova. Tereshkova was born in the village of Maslenikovo on the 6th of March, 1937. 
like Yuri Gagarin before her, she came from common stock. The daughter of a tractor driver and a textile factory worker, she was very much a woman of the people and not an elite. This made her a particularly appealing candidate to be the first woman in space, as the Soviets were very interested in promoting working-class people as heroes of their cause. To make her an even better fit, her father had fought in the Red Army during World War II, what the Soviets called the Great Patriotic War, where he had been killed. By the time Valentina was 18, she was working in a textile factory like her mother, but she attended classes at an industrial school and also developed a fascination with flying. Or rather, falling. She joined a local aviation club where she learned to be a parachutist, eventually making more than 150 jumps. This salt-of-the-earth woman with a love for flying was quite interested when her countrymen started flying into space. After German Titov was launched aboard Vostok 2, she penned a letter to the Soviet Space Center volunteering to become a cosmonaut. She had no way of knowing just how well-timed that letter had been. During this period, the Cosmonaut Center were quite interested in finding female volunteers to become cosmonauts. They were actively searching for just such an applicant. In December of 1962, Valentina was called to Moscow to undergo the selection tests that would decide if she were physically and mentally qualified to be a space pilot. These tests took several months, and Valentina was not the only woman being considered. Come March, Valentina and four other women were selected from the pool of candidates and granted honorary commissions as lieutenants in the Soviet Air Force. Valentina Tereshkova, Irina Solovoyova, Jana Yorkina, Tatiana Kuznetsova, and Valentina Ponomaryova. They were then shipped off to receive flight training. Come May of 1963, Tereshkova and Tatiana Kuznetsova were selected to prepare for Vostok 6, but it would be ultimately decided that Tereshkova would make the flight. Vostok 5 was going to be flown by Valery Baikovsky, one of the original Star Squad. He had been the backup for Vostok 3, but as yet had not had the chance to fly into space. He had taken a very different route to the cosmonaut corps than Tereshkova. Born near Moscow in 1934, he traveled quite extensively as a boy. His father worked for the Ministry of Railways which required the family to move around quite a lot. He even lived for seven years in Iran. He graduated from the Kachinsk Military Aviation Academy in 1955, where he trained to become a combat pilot. Baikovsky's father was reported as saying, quote, He has always been courageous and exciting, and dangerous professions attracted him, end quote. I can only imagine the allure that spaceflight would hold for a pilot with those inclinations. He suffered through the cosmonaut selection process and became a member of the first cosmonaut class alongside Yuri Gagarin, German Titov, Andrian Nikolaev, and Pavel Popovich. On the 14th of June, Vostok 5, call sign Hawk, 
lifted off from Baikonur, and rumbled skywards atop an R-7 rocket. The capsule wound up in a lower orbit than was planned, but it would remain stable for at least a few days. Baikovsky then started his first few orbits. He would remain there for two days alone before Valentina would join him on Vostok 6. On the ground, Valentina was making ready for her own launch. Come the morning of the 16th, she and her alternates strapped on their pressure suits and were carted to the launch pad. A two-hour countdown played out before the engines touched off and she was on her way. Vostok 6, callsign Seagull, arrived in orbit without incident. Just as had been done nearly a year prior, the two Vostoks drew within just a few kilometers of each other during their flights, in what might appear from the ground to be an orbital rendezvous. The ensuing orbits played out well. Tereshkova kept up with her flight log and made many observations and measurements regarding how her body responded to spaceflight. The two cosmonauts also photographed the Earth and the atmosphere. As had become standard, measurements of the cosmonauts' biological processes were collected throughout, as they performed various tasks and racked up more hours in orbit. Tereshkova's measurements were particularly valuable as there was absolutely no data yet available as to whether or not the female body would respond differently than the male one in space. Tereshkova reported after the flight that she had no problems with the microgravity, and that communications were clear throughout the mission. However, she did report that she was plagued by some body pains throughout the flight, starting with one in her shin that kept her from leaving her seat during the first day in orbit. She also vomited once, but she attributed this to the quality of the food she had been sent, and not to any sort of vestibular disorientation. Both Tereshkova and Baikovsky re-entered without incident, and returned safely to Earth, where they were widely celebrated upon their return. Baikovsky had completed 81 orbits during his time in space, which played out over the course of nearly five days. That was the record at the time for longest flight, and it remains to this day as the world record for longest solo spaceflight. Baikovsky and Tereshkova were both named heroes of the Soviet Union, and then sent on a propaganda tour. Behind the scenes, there were plans being laid for Vostok 7. Kurlyov had hopes of launching many additional Vostok flights after 5 and 6, which would theoretically run all the way through the spring of 1966. But like Mercury Atlas 10, the later missions were scrapped in favor of a new plan for a multi-crew spacecraft that would be called Voshod. So, the Vostok program came to an end. The Soviets' first piloted program had served its purpose just like Mercury had in the United States. Vostok had placed a Soviet cosmonaut in space first, kept a cosmonaut in orbit for a full day first, had seen two manned spacecraft fly simultaneously first, and had put the first woman in space. It was an immensely successful project that had advanced human efforts in space and kept the Soviets comfortably ahead of the Americans in the space race.
Voshod would be the next act, an escalation in Soviet technical prowess and scientific ability. But before it could be launched, there was another major development that would play out on the ground. It took the form of a wedding. On the 3rd of November, Valentina Tereshkova was wed to fellow cosmonaut Andrian Nikolaev. In their infinite altruism, the Soviet state handled all of the wedding preparations, throwing an extravagant event that drew eyes and cameras from all corners of the map. Naturally, Soviet media rang the word out all over the world. To maximize the propagandistic potency of this event, every major figure in the Soviet space community was required to attend. And, for the first time since the inception of the Soviet space program, Kurlyov and Glushko were both allowed to attend a public event. I imagine that, given their recent falling out, they likely kept their distance as much as they could at the wedding. But with so many cameras clicking and flashing, it was inevitable that they would be pictured at the event. Soon after, the New York Times ran an article on the wedding, which included a segment reporting that unofficial channels had identified, quote, Academicians Valentin Glushko, combustion engineer, and Sergei P. Kurlyov, a mechanical engineer, end quote, as major figures in the Soviet space program. This wasn't the first time that Kurlyov had been indicated as an important player in the Soviet space game. An article published by a Soviet defector to the United States had pointed out that both Glushko and Kurlyov were leading engineers, but there was still little known about precisely the roles they played and what they were responsible for. This corroboration, as dubious as the sources may have been, nevertheless helped to shine some light on the structure and talent of the Soviet space program. Up until this point, it was as though Kurlyov and his nemesis in the United States, Werner von Braun, were confined to either side of a two-way mirror. Kurlyov could see out. He could see von Braun and what he was up to at any time. But von Braun was almost entirely blind to what Kurlyov was doing. A few episodes ago, I included a quote from Gene Kranz's book about his time at NASA Mission Control, where he stated that NASA was very interested in what the Soviets were up to, but that their intelligence on the matter was restricted to newspaper and trade journal clippings. The wedding of Tereshkova and Nikolaev, however, had reduced the opacity of that window. Von Braun now had a name. His main rival, who had always seemed to be a couple steps ahead, was most likely Sergei Kurlyov. Both of these men, the top rocket engineers of their day, serving on opposite sides of a global struggle for ideological domination, were both preparing to embark on a new frontier in space. This is the last regular episode of Season 1. We've reached the end of Projects Mercury and Vostok, and are ready to move on to the second generations of both the Soviet and American space programs. Coming up, we've got one more ancillary about the first spaceplane program, 
the X-15. Then we're going to run through a quick recap of what we've covered before we start in on Season 2. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.